Hello and welcome to another episode of Chris Talks Music. In today's show, we speak to Shed7, who will be headlining a special show at Doncaster Racecourse this weekend on Saturday the 14th of May. Shed7 originally rose to fame as one of the leading lights of the Britpop scene, some 30 years since they were originally formed back in York in 1990, Shed7 have established themselves as one of the nation's favourite alternative rock bands. They turned heads with the release of their classic debut album Changegiver back in 1994. The Rick Witter fronted five-piece unfilled a flurry of smash hits that would come to define the period, and since they've amassed an impressive 15 top 40 singles and four top 20 albums, They've broken up, they've got back together, and they're bringing back their classic hits. Today's episode, I speak to Rick Witter, talk about all sorts of things. But before we get into that, I'm going to open up with the excellent song, Chasing Rainbows. Enjoy. This thing's that I regret Like being called a nervous wreck and working up another sweat field. There's nothing I can do but count the parts and bleeding hearts and all the things that fall apart. Chris, yes, it's going very well, thank you. How are you? <laughs> Not bad, mate. So are you Good. having your kitchen ripped out? Yeah, it's kind of getting towards the end of the... Uh, There's light at the end of the tunnel. We've uh, been knocking walls down and everything, so it's been a bit of a mess. But um, we're getting there. Hopefully in a few weeks' time, I'll have a new kitchen, which was, you know, the aim... We've been talking about doing this for a long time and, and finally bit the bullet. Uh and as I say, it's just been one big mess after another, but we're almost there. And then you can come round and I can make you a nice cup of tea. Oh, that sounds great. Well, we are kind of in the era of um, home improvement and DIY anyways, aren't we? Because there's nothing else better to do. So um... Yes, that's very, very true. But also, you know, it's, you know, the nature of knocking walls out means you're trying to create space and everyone likes space. But the problem there is once you've created space, you just end up filling it. With stuff. Yeah. With stuff. It just yeah. defeats the object. You just get more stuff to fill that space. We, we remove obstructions to only fill it with more. Yeah, exactly but, that. Exactly that. Yes. The, um, I was going to ask you, actually, about 
while we're kind of on about the the whole theme of stuff, um, Instant Pleasure is the album. I remember you yeah. did an interview. This was like 2017, I think, God, ages ago. Yeah. Um, and you were talking about kind of like the instantaneous gratification of things, things being on mm. tap. Um, and now that was five years ago. Um, what do you think about all of that now? Well, that is the scary thing you see because before Instant Pleasures, the last studio album we released was in 2001. So it took 16 years for us to release brand new music. And already it's five years old, that album. I can't quite believe that that's happened. Um, we are, funnily enough, we are currently in the process of writing new stuff, which we're hoping to release next year. So at least the gap is only six years this time and not 16 um, if we can come up with the goods, of course. But yeah, to answer your question, it's it's madness. Everything is just instant. You know, I want this and you've got it there. It's just right in front of you. You know, in some ways it makes life easier, but in other ways it takes the kind of thrill of of the wait. You know what I mean? I always used to like waiting for something to come out or waiting for this or that. And, and now it's just there, you know, talking musically, it is a little bit sad how this generation and the next ones won't ever know that feeling of buying an album and listening to it from start to finish. And, and well, I guess people still love vinyl, don't they? But what I mean is the nature of you can just click your finger and buy one song off an album that yeah. a band has created. And that's why with Instant Pleasures, we wanted it to feel like a proper album with a side A and a side B. And, and we we kind of made a big point of making sure that track six was a good way to round off half of the album, you know. Because yeah. that, seems, that seems to have gone a little bit now, you know. But it's the nature of the beast, isn't it? It's just life. It's just what happens. Yeah, it is. But it's like you talk about the thrills of like waiting for album release day. I mean, I remember one time, I think it was like Eminem, well, D12's um, debut album. And I remember waiting for HMV to open up and there was about 10 of us outside and it's kind of almost like a ritual, isn't it? And then you go in, yeah. you pick up the CD, you queue up, you buy your CD, take it outside, tear off the shrink wrap. And then the first thing you do before you even like put it into your CD player or cassette player, depending on which era you're listening to it in, you, you, You'd read the inlay card, or you, in some Massively. cases, you'd smell it. Hey, <laughs> and talking about smelling, I've got a lot of vinyl at home, and that's what—that's just as joyful as actually playing the products. Is actually sticking your nose inside the vinyl cover and giving it a damn good smell. It, there's nothing like it. So, with the instantaneous gratification of us being able to just download an album, or in most cases, people don't download a singular song; they listen to it via playlists. Um, yeah. So you kind of just get lumped in with a bunch of other artists, but it's um, yeah, you can't beat that initial ritual of just enjoying that experience from first. That's kind of been eradicated and slowly taken away. But I mean, you say that, but then, like you say, a lot of people are buying vinyl as well, aren't they? So yeah, it's become it's become a a, a cool pastime, hasn't it? Creating. Yeah. You know, I, I'm quite lucky, really. I've there's, over the years, there's been a few occasions where I've almost got rid of my vinyl, but but didn't. Something was stopping me from doing it, and now I'm so pleased that I never did because I've got quite a lot of it. And to be honest, don't really have that much time to play it on a turntable. 
Um, but just looking at it is just a great, fine thing. So, you know, um, I know a lot of friends who've got rid of their vinyl, maybe at the beginning of the noughties, thinking, oh, I don't really need this anymore. And they're, they're all really regretful of that now. So yeah. I stand proud in my living room. Yeah, it's nice. It's a nice thing to have as well. Um, I'd love a vinyl, uh, well, a record player, but um, I've got like the Sonos surround sound in my in my living room. Nice. And I've um, I can't. You've got to buy like special adapters to plug those in, so it's um, it's a right ball. Like basically, it's because I've decided to make things wireless. I've now inconvenienced myself with yeah. stuff like audio, whatnot, and then now it's like a more expensive price of entry really but um yeah yeah that album um instant pleasures i was listening to the song uh, enemies and friends before i was listening to a couple actually um it really reminded me of like if you'd like got like the killers and then smashed it with Britpop in a way <laughs> do you know the kind of the driving energy of it yeah well in- interesting you say that because um when the killers first appeared on the scene we're talking 2000 maybe 2001 yeah, about that time, because they were in the OC, weren't they? The TV show. Yeah. They made a so, so at that time, we weren't really being written about very favourably in the music press. We were kind of like the uncool cousins of Britpop, you know, that daft band with the daft hair kind of thing. So I, I do remember even Chris Moyles, who I know quite well, genuinely thought that the killer's first album was shed seven under a different name he genuinely thought it was us um so we had to keep telling him honestly it's not us so a few people were telling us this new band called the killers were quite shed seventy um so i do remember reading an, an interview with brandon flowers around about the time of hot fuzz um where he was asked about the fact they sounded quite like us. And bearing in mind that Brandon Flowers used to say how much he loved listening to Britpop in the 90s when he was living in Las Vegas. Yeah. Um, and But he claimed he'd never heard of Shed 7. And I find that very surprising <clears throat> if, he was, if he was growing up listening to Britpop that he'd never heard of Shed 7. So... I'm guessing he just didn't like the association of being sounding similar to Shed 7. But I hope he's changed his opinion because we are really good. <laughs> yeah. It's like you said, you mentioned a bit about not really being like the media darlings and you'd made reference in the past to almost, I guess, feeling like a bit of a an imposter syndrome with regards to the, the Britpop um, groups that you, and you to quote, you kind of associated with like the likes of Pulp, Blur and then Oasis, which is when people ask about Britpop, but you were mm. very much around throughout that period. It's just, yeah. why do you think you weren't embraced? Because I, mean, I think that was nothing to do with me, by the way. I wasn't no, no. <laughs> well, I like the way you put embrace into that. That was good. That was quite clever. Um, I think, I think, I guess a lot of it was we just didn't play ball. You know, I think we're from York. When we signed our deal, we had the choice of moving to London and being seen in all the nightclubs and getting being naughty and going off the rails. And we just, yeah, we did a lot of that, but we also chose to stay grounded and where we're from because it was always great going and recording an album in London or going out and doing the, the 
you know, the promotion side of stuff, but it was just as important to us to just get on a train and it takes two hours and then you're home and you're seeing your friends and you're grounded and, you know, you'd come home and see your, your friend base who all just had jobs in York and we've gone off doing what we're doing and that'd be, you know, you'd come home and you'd go to the pub and meet your mates and they'd be asking them, well, what happened? What, what, who did you see? And all this, but then they'd equally just start telling you that the other day they were fixing somebody's toilet. You know what I mean? It's, it yeah. brings you back down to earth slightly. So we didn't really play ball in that respect. And I think that kind of riled them a bit. Um, but there was, you know, I'm not, I'm just generalizing a little bit, but you know, the press were quite bad in the nineties to an extent, to the extent where they'd almost admit that they had charts on their office walls saying, build them up this week and knock them down that week. Yeah. You know, and that's, this, this is people's careers you're talking about. So when, when you're reading a, when you're reading a single review in a music paper and it's for on standby and it doesn't even mention the song once, it just mentions how horrible I am as a person. It's like, well, come on, you know, talk about the song that's what people want to know but we were very lucky because we had a great strong fan base who went out and bought the stuff anyway regardless of what some bloke thought of me <laughs> you know? yeah, <laughs> yeah and you know 30 years 31 years later we still are still doing it you know and uh very fortunate for that and feel very lucky even though obviously what we do is great and it's deserved it's also you've you know you can't take anything for granted and the fact that we can go out and tour and still sell out big gigs and people come and they look like they're having the, the best time ever is just a, one of the biggest feelings, one of the, gre- the greatest feelings you can ever have, really. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it was interesting when you were talking about the the kind of the initial bit. It's like it's like being at school, isn't it, where you have these expectations of what you're expected to live up to and. Um, or how you're meant to be perceived by everybody else and how that kind of then follows you into adulthood and then it's perpetuated by the press um, in a quite vociferous way because, I mean, it's making or breaking careers or destroying someone's morale, isn't it? But um, Yes. I think you there's, do- also a little bit, there's also a little bit as well of kind of keeping up with the Joneses in the respect that around about the same time as we've started releasing records so were oasis but obviously they they grabbed so many covers of of magazines because of their attitude and because because of their behavior and you know you, you're almost pressured to live up to that but it's not what we're about you know you know we don't want to go around scrapping with everybody or you know, even though we kind of probably had a similar kind of sense of ourselves, you know, Oasis would go around saying we are the best. And we probably felt the same inside, but we didn't really feel that we had to go around telling everybody that because we knew it, you know. Um, but then at the end of the day, what is best? <laughs> if you like something, you just like it. You don't need to be best. <laughs> no, you don't. I think it, but it's more like him building up that character, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Oasis, um, the Gallagher's yeah. especially, just building up that kind of that um, perception of what the people wanted to see from them, and then mm. ironically, we're in the age whereby authenticity is something that's craved. Yeah. Um, and it's whereas at the time it was about playing up to these types in these roles, and because you you didn't really go against the grain, you just stayed true to kind of who you were, and you 
you liked your structure you liked to feel grounded you liked a space that was familiar um where you could retreat to almost around all of the noise and everything else so i don't i think mm. it's bit stupid really that you were kind of lambasted for it when you think about it from a just a normal human perspective it's it's a shame but yeah. well but this is the point you see because we are still here doing it yeah you know perseverance and, and, is key. yeah exactly that yeah and uh you know we're not overly precious if we did put some gigs on sale and nobody wanted to buy a ticket we'd know it's game over but we're very <laughs> lucky that we can still do this and you know as I say, when we were talking about instant pleasures, it was 16 long years between releases. And for a, for a long time there, there was no inclination to, to do any new music. We kind of almost got into that nostalgic kind of, that that's the band who plays all their 90s songs. But we accidentally started just writing some new songs and they all just turned out to be really good. So we thought, well, there is life in the old dog yet. Well, which you is had kind of years, didn't you, of thinking of stuff to say, really? Yeah. Well, for about nine of those years, there was no inclination whatsoever. But that, it probably took us three or four years to to write instant pleasures, simply because we were meeting up once every other week for a few hours. So it wasn't an intense kind of an intense get together in a studio and bang it all out in three weeks. It did take an awful long time, but I think that helped as well because it was there was no pressure on us. Nobody knew we were doing it. You know, we, we, we kind of almost surprised ourselves at what we were coming out with. And it's funny because a lot of Shed 7 fans over those years were, you know, a lot of fans were kind of saying, will you ever write anything new? And we'd always say, well, I don't know, maybe. And then when fans discovered that we had written a new album, there was an awful lot of hardcore Shed 7 fans who were very worried all of a sudden that it was going to be any good. But because we'd done it, we knew it was, if you like Shed 7, you're going to like Instant Pleasures. You know, it's like it's like the modern 90s. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and we're, we're, in that, we're in that similar situation now. We've, we've announced, we toured in December and we announced, I, I was saying at every gig, we're going to go away and write some new music because we want to, we want to release another album. So we are in the process of doing that now, but I did make a big point of telling thousands of people in at Christmas that we are doing that because that means we have to now. <laughs> yeah. And now you're obliged. You've, um, yeah. you've, you're giving it, you're giving it up and you, you could have kept it quite a certain yeah. project. Well, but, we have, we've written probably the, the, the makings of a good half album so far. Um, but if we want to release anything next year, we have to have it completed by this year because apparently there's like a nine month turnaround to manufacture these things for nine months just to create CDs and vinyl. It shows you the, the state of everything that's going on in the world though, doesn't it? Yes, so... it does. So we've given ourselves a deadline of finishing writing by towards the end of this year and then record it hopefully very beginning of next year and then release it maybe September next year, which will be quite exciting. Yeah. So, Oh, that'd be good. But you've got um, obviously you're doing um, quite, you're doing a tour this year. You'll be at Doncaster Racecourse fairly soon as well. Yeah, we're doing it's a summer of festivals this year. We usually we usually do a big Christmas tour every other year. So the year we don't do that is uh, the festival year. So yes, we've got a busy summer ahead. Um, but it's different from touring because touring's quite intense and it's three gigs day off, three gigs day off, or whatnot. 
Whereas yeah. this is this is like a couple of gigs over the weekend and then you get the week to recover and then you're back on it again the following weekend. So, so yes, you're right. This Doncaster race course gig on Saturday is the beginning of that run of summer, summer gigs, which should be great. And, you know, as I say, it gives us that, it gives us that time through the week to carry on writing new stuff. Yeah. The songs, funnily enough, the songs we have written so far, I can already, you know, we've not, We've done some very rough demos just so we don't forget what we're doing. But already I've got the sense that these new songs could just easily sit within our existing set lists and not look out of place. So the signs are good. That's good, yeah. It's um, something new, but kind of a flavour of what's familiar as well. Yeah, definitely. Nice. The, um, what was I going to say? So um, I was just thinking in terms of this new album, then is are there going to be... Or are there any influences from previous artists that you'd like listen to before that have kind of like I guess um, shaped some of the music? Because like the song on standby that was from Maximum High, wasn't it? That album. Yeah. Um, I really got the sense that that was like, for example, an upbeat song by the Smiths. <laughs> it was like yeah, the Smiths, I knew. Like, yes, yeah. I knew you were going to say that. I think that lots of different influences seep into us we all like listening to different stuff but we're, we're all big smiths fans um um nice though because it's a nice segue do you know what i mean yeah yeah i think that's probably subconsciously happening but the, the one thing i am noticing with these brand new songs that we're writing the lyrics that i'm coming up with and i'm sure lots of other acts are probably thinking of similar thing and it's subconscious i'm not i'm not sat down planning anything but a lot of the lyrics are about going somewhere or traveling and obviously we've just all been in a situation where we've all not been able to do that so subconsciously it's coming out like that but I think there's something good about that really because you know we've written this three and a half minute pop song and uh, it's all about going out with your loved one and just having a brilliant time. And, yeah. you know, it's very upbeat and positive. And uh, people latch onto stuff like that. And, and everybody who doesn't want to go out with someone that they love and just have a brilliant time. So, you know, we're hoping that that, that catches on with people anyway. So it's a not quite malevolent emancipation then <laughs> well it, it, it might end up like that but this yeah. particular song isn't that now <laughs> oh good yeah so um how did it feel like kind of going through that two years of i mean because like you were saying it's five years since the last album but really the last two years it's almost like two years in lieu isn't it it's time lost in a way yeah. how did you yeah. how did you find all that time uh well we in <sighs> 2019 we'd just completed a big Christmas tour so ordinarily when we've done that we usually have five or six months on the down low anyway before the festivals kick in so the beginning of lockdown wasn't that strange for me because I'd find myself at home anyway um, and then the more it went on weirdly the more you just kind of get attuned to it and you get used to it so it was actually more weird for me when we started to come out of lockdown and then suddenly, all right, we're going to go and play in front of a big crowd of people. It was a bit daunting at first. But the first gig back we did was the Halifax Peace Hall that was postponed yeah. due to COVID. And that's like five and a half, six thousand people in an outdoor space. And it was a bit weird building up to it. But weirdly, 
one song in, it just felt like COVID had never happened. It was just a big crowd of people there singing their hearts out, looking like they're having a great time, and we just put on a great show. So it's, you know, you can find yourselves in life moments where you can put too much stress and emphasis on things, but obviously COVID was such a huge, and the lockdowns were such a huge, weird time for everybody, really. And it's the not knowing, isn't it, that, that kills. Yeah, it's it's that, and I think it's the... The isolation as well, isn't it? I do think yeah. you know, that was a key thing. I think, um, I mean, obviously it was awful. A lot of the people, too many people dying from um, this virus or disease because the terminology is always changing. But I think it's the mental effect that it's had on people. Um, no mm. matter what their um, perceived social status is, I do think it's affected us all in a variety of different ways. Yeah, and you're right. Yeah. That's and it's, you know, it's not, it's not just the actual disease it's it's if you're suffering from other illnesses and you can't get seen and you know that's how how unfortunate is that if you've got another problem and you can't get that seen to and and that eventually kills you so it's such a horrendous situation to be in really isn't it yeah yeah it's um yeah it's an horrible one it's yeah, I think it's a time that's really messed with a lot of people. And then I kind of mm. think also that's where your instant gratification, instant pleasures analogy from years ago is was so um, prescient because like now we're in the time whereby people have been so isolated for so long and they end up on stuff like dating apps and they're all swiping on people and they don't really want to be with people. They just want people to like them again yeah. <laughs> or just feel get validated. Attention. Yeah, yeah, be validated. Yeah, and, um, yeah. I think, and then that goes on to things like our social media, like your Instagrams, when you've got influencers and stuff like that. So it's all people trying to go somewhere by not being themselves and being basically an avatar of of themselves. Um, and it's like I think we've kind of lost a, a bit of connection with who we are actually are. So I think it's um, it's going to take us a bit of time to kind of come out of this. Um, from a psychological perspective, but I digress. That's quite depressing. Um, the music. Well, it's funny because there was a song called Better Days off Instant Pleasures that was just meant for a, a lockdown scenario, really. I just want you here. You know, you didn't even come close. We're all holding out for better days. Obviously, that was written pre-COVID, but it, it kind of fits the bill. So maybe subconsciously, I knew this was coming in 2017. <laughs> you say that if you look back at a lot of the Brit pop though, and you you listen to some of the wistful tracks released by um, different groups or artists over that time period, it's like a lot of that stuff is really analogous to now. It's it's crazy really because it's like we're talking about that isolation and that longing and that desire to be free or be elsewhere. And it couldn't be any more applicable to us all right now, really, could it? I mean, well, it, yeah. it's um, kind of out of reach for a lot of us because we've got to wait 10 weeks for a passport, haven't we? But uh, Yeah, uh... well, that's, yeah, funnily enough, my daughter's runs out in July and we're supposed to be going somewhere. So that we're kind of now yeah. hopeful that that comes back within the next 10 weeks, yeah. Yeah, so it's a, it's a, it's a fun old time. But, I mean... What's it? Thirty-one years since you guys got together. Yeah, nineteen ninety, we formed. I shed seven, but previous yeah, to that, uh, me, Paul, and Tom were in 
various school bands together um, going back before that. So pretty much, well, me and Paul met when we were 11 and started pretending we were in bands when we were about 12, you know. Pretending. Walking walking around, yeah, we are in a band, but we'd not quite decided who was going to do what yet, and obviously no songs were written. But, you know, me and Paul used to sit in each other's bedrooms as 13-year-olds, designing the record covers to the songs we'd yet to write, even down to having a, a barcode on there with false numbers. So it's always been it's always been there. Um, and I think in a way it's all of that kind of groundwork um, stood us in good stead for when, when we were like 19, 20 and we were signing a record deal. Because, um, we'd, you know, we'd be playing all the local pubs as 16-year-olds, getting a bit of a fan base going around town. Um, and we'd go and do like workshops in schools. You know, on Saturdays there used to be this pop shop they'd call it where they'd have like grown-ups who would set up equipment and help you try and write songs as kids but okay, me and like Paul, a workshop yeah so they'd kind of point you in the right direction and say right why don't you try doing this here and then this is the bridge and then you've got to have a catchy chorus and and they'd like leave you for the morning to create some type of song and then you'd show it to everyone else who was in there but me and Paul would almost turn up with a song we'd <laughs> written already, <laughs> which I think quite annoyed some of these teachers because it's their job to tell you, but we were turning up as 14-year-olds with ready-built songs. That's good. You were visualising it from a young age then. Yeah, well, we'd just, you know, we'd spend so much time together listening to music um, and, and just letting it seep in. You know, we, we were both big fans of Frankie Goes to Hollywood's first album, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome, when we were like 12 or 13, how old we were. And that I, I remember just being in my kitchen at the time, blasting that out, just pretending we were Frankie Goes to Hollywood. So I was always Holly Johnson and Banks was um, uh, Paul Rutherford. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. You've um, <laughs> you've had quite a few changes in your lineup over the years, haven't you? And and did you have two guys they announced last year, was it, they were leaving? Yes. So, yes, it's stage, God knows however many now, of Shed 7. Uh, but the hardcore, me, Paul and Tom, who've been there from the very beginning, yeah, um, were still at it. Uh, yeah, but, you know, times change, needs change. Um, both of the guys that have just left, you know, they're, they're busy doing other things and... and in their heads, these other things take precedent over being in the band. So we would no way for one minute want to stand in somebody's way. If they're, if they're not as keen on it anymore, then so be it, you know? Yeah. So the core, the core of Shed 7 is me, Paul and Tom, really. Um, and we're the ones now who are trying to write this next album. So, you know, we shall be back organs blazing, hopefully. Yeah, that'll be good. That'll be decent. Well, now this has been great. I'd like to thank you so much for your time, Rick. It's been no, that's all right, Chris. Nice thank you for having me. No worries, and um, I'll wish you all the best for the show on Saturday, fourteenth of thank May. You. There's still tickets available, isn't there? I think. Yes, I believe so. It's a race meet, isn't it? So the first yeah. race is five p.m., and I think we go on about ten o'clock. So by that point, everyone's going to be absolutely hammered. So just try and keep a little bit back, please, if you come in, and, and remember that we actually played. 
Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> a little bit class, yeah. And then you've just recently celebrated the 25th anniversary of your first album as well. Yes, scary. Because so, I think I'm only 23, so I don't know how that's happened. Yeah, and well, that's the thing, you got two years back from COVID in lieu, so well, technically you, you were you birthed. Go with the first album there you well, go that's class but thank you so much for your time Rick you have a great day right. I hope the kitchen comes together soon good man thanks Chris cheers to... take care now bye I'd like to thank Rick for taking the time to talk to me today lovely gent Shed 7 performing at the Doncaster race course on 14th of May it's called Live After Racing at the Doncaster race course tickets are still available you'll find the link just underneath well or in the description rather and tickets are priced at £35 for advanced tickets and £25 for children under 18 years old under fives get free admission other than that I'm going to bring this to a close with the classic song Going for Gold some of you will know this song pretty well but yes, enjoy Ever, ever. You took the words right.